Uh, we're going to continue in Genesis, um, but a little bit, uh, the way I want to start this morning, uh, maybe a little bit uh, differently because of maybe the week we have had, some of the week uh, in which we faced some things, things have been heightened, so I uh, wrote out something that shifted and changed, and I, I want to step in this way. I'll say it like this. We're going to begin by staring into the, the face of pain as we begin this morning. We will not sidestep as a community the difficult and confusing, the things that boil the fire in our heart. Uh, it's easy for us to look away in our culture to simply distract ourselves with the endless consumption of entertainment or decorating our much with more. While chaos and death continue to show up and plead with us to do something. The nearly daily occurrence of mass shootings in our country has likely landed on the doorstep of someone you know with a Michigan State University shooting. The lack of reason other than swirling chaos begs us to excavate the soul in order to please make room for change. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk in politics as I'm all too well aware of how passionate our society is about protecting guns. But we are going to pray this morning. And we do not pray, please hear this, we do not pray because God needs to be reminded or alerted to be close with or to be along with those who are hurting. God's presence presence isn't dependent or determined by our prayers. It's more that prayer reminds us to be fully present to the heart of the divine and to the ache of the human heart. So we're going to pray uh, and then sink into a, a teaching that could not be more relevant in the face of all of this surrounding moral responsibility. Now, as part of the Shema that we have said many times together in the book of Deuteronomy, as a part of the Shema, there is a section that is actually known as a prayer called the Vehafta. And Vehafta in Hebrew means, and you shall love. So when you're on that part, and you shall love the Lord your God, it's called the Vehafta prayer. And then there's a, a rabbinic midrash that goes with this, but I want to read this and then the Midrash, then a bit of prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now the, mid, the midrash that goes with this sounds like this. A disciple goes to his rabbi and says, why does the Torah tell us to place these words upon our hearts? Why not tell us to place these words in our hearts? The rabbi answers, it is because as we are, as we are, our hearts are closed and we cannot place the holy words in our hearts. 
So we place them on our hearts, and there they stay until one day the heart breaks open. And at that time, the words fall in and land as they need to be when they need to be. And for us, it is that we would soak ourselves in those things that are life-giving, life-restoring, so that on the time, the days, the places, the moments like this when our hearts are broken, that we are held by the words of truth and grace and compassion and mercy, but also hopefully pull us to offer that for others as well. Let's pray. Living Christ, we pray healing for those who are still physically suffering from the tragedy. We pray for the broken hearts, including our own, that they would be open to your love, your grace, your peace in the midst of chaos. May we be filled with your love, your grace, and your peace and moved to live your love out loud that our world would be enveloped and radically transformed through you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, hang with me. If you will, I am not unaware of the fact that this takes a long time, and I took this message and cut it way, way, way down, and I also recognize that it's going to be really long. And so... Um, I will take my phone out now and I'll put it down here so that when it's over, I'll know what time it is. Uh-huh. Now then, we all intellectually know, do not kill, thou shall not kill. We get that. We hear something like that and we're like, okay, we can get there. So what I want to do to begin is dig beyond the rather obvious and look at some nuanced questions to get at maybe what our definition would be of what is a good person or what is a moral person, if you will. But let's ask some questions to kind of dig at that because we'd say, oh, it's, you know, do not kill. Of course, of course, of course. So a question, you don't have to raise your hand or whatever. Just at this point, we'll maybe get into that, but just for you to be swirling around uh, in your head. Are you good or moral if you frequently give money to help those in need but cheat on your husband? Are you good if you are sweet to your mother but rude to strangers? Is it wrong to use someone else's Netflix password? Because is it not in fact stealing even if it's piracy light? What are the long-term effects of our seemingly small choices? Because it's easy to draw clear lines on morality for other people. 
Then we can live with the simple duality of us and them. There's us, those who live with a sense of morality, and then there's them, you know, those people who lack morality and are ruining our world. This merely creates a definition of morality that is individualistic, which is severely lacking, leading to why the Bible, although thousands of years old from a context far, far away, cuts deep in teaching us a bottomless well of truth. So I want to pick up where we've been in Genesis and see what happens as the story has moved. What happens when moral responsibility disintegrates over hundreds and hundreds of years, when it continues to dissolve what happens? We'll begin in Genesis chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, kind of picking up where we were. Um, And this is from uh, the Jewish Publication Society translation. The Lord, which is Yahweh, said to him, that is Cain. We were in this story where we're looking at a guy named Cain. uh, Said to him, I promise if anyone kills Cain, even speaking to Cain, sevenfold vengeance shall be taken on him. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him. Cain left the presence of the Lord. There it is, Sean. The, I I, I type it in and I didn't get it in there. Presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now the Hebrew word for this promise at the beginning, the Hebrew word for promise, lachen, that begins this section is really, really fascinating. It derives from the realm of law. And it's first given to Cain, then pronounced to the world at large. For us, think of a royal proclamation stating that although his crime was egregious, he is not uh, absent of the love of the divine. Okay, God still cares for him. And it's like, there's like this royal pronouncement. No, 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 no. The love is not gone. It's very, very relevant for us because how many times I have heard, maybe you've heard someone, oh, I'm sorry, I can't go in the church. If I walk in that building, the roof will what? Collapse down on me. Oh, no, 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 I'm not allowed to be around those people or I couldn't participate in church because God will throw lightning at me. Because we seem to think that if once we've done certain things wrong or so many things wrong or whatever it is, that we are outside the scope of God's grace and love and compassion. And so we hear in this um, text already saying this promise, lachen, is this like law that's being proclaimed from on high, if you will. So um, then we get to it, says this mark, and this is fascinating, this mark put on Cain, scholar Nehum Sarna highlights how the contextual understanding aligns with the Exodus. Think of the story of the Exodus, wherein the people would mark the doorpost, which we just read, the frames of their homes with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. So he's like, yeah, these are connected because remember, when we're reading Genesis, it has been compiled put together as we have it when they were in exile in Babylon. So they have all of the Hebrew scriptures they're looking back on. So they say this mark is similar to the one that would be in the Exodus over the doorpost 
and Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, we have the prophet who is told to mark, ready, with ash, the foreheads of those who grieve and lament the wickedness that has befallen Jerusalem. So as destruction comes upon the city, those who are marked will be spared. It's fascinating. So this mark that is spoken of of Cain is a mark of compassion and mercy. It's important. Finally, similar to his parents, Adam and Eve, their initial move east of the paradise of God, Cain takes a further step east from such harmony and settles in the land of Nod. Now the Hebrew word, that Hebrew word, the root word for Nod means wandering, means wandering. You also find it in verses 12 and 14 where Cain is saying, I'll be a wanderer, I'll wander. The Hebrew root is nude, which is nude is the root of node. Um, so then, it's essentially saying Cain will spend his life unsettled, divorced from the two main ways in which the soil provides for humanity. One, it's stable ground. It creates a home for us, a grounded home, literally, as well as sustenance. The soil provides sustenance, and we, were, and we heard in the, um, the curse that now there will be toil, is the word that we read, toil, which is itziban. Itziban means uh, sorrow or the ache of the heart. That's what will happen now in order to get the sustenance of the ground. So there is a question bubbling in the movement of this narrative. It revolves around this, and this is kind of what we're sinking in with the key in this whole thing. What will happen to Cain's moral responsibility? Will it stay static and stuck, or will it grow? Are you with me? Really important. It isn't just a set. Now, here's the thing. When we think morality, morality isn't just a sense of right and wrong. It isn't just a set of rules that we can make everyone follow. Deep down, morality is an understanding of how our actions impact others and creation. Is that how you think of morality? How our actions impact others and creation. So baked into morality is empathy for other people. It's about community. Morality involves community. And as I mentioned last week, and will continue to mention, the book of Genesis is about a community. How Yahweh is developing a people. Something about what the divine is building requires empathy for others. These stories are not about individuals. They're about becoming a community together. How to live in society together. Do we need that lesson today? Anyone? Anyone? So Chris Jamie, he's an American poet, philosopher, author, and clothing designer, really fascinating guy. He says this about this. All men are born firstly with the instinct to protect themselves, but few grow to really love themselves, and even fewer learn to love their neighbor as themselves. Ouch. And yet what a phenomenal call. The challenge is clear. Will we grow? 
Will we grow in an individualistic society that actually is constantly telling us, move towards comfort, move towards self-preservation? This is the challenge, and it is not easy. Genesis 4, 17 says this, Cain was intimate with his wife. Now we see the, the narrative move. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And he, that's Cain, was building a city, and he named the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now there's so much in one little verse. First, it begins as a mirror to how chapter 4 began. Remember? It was Adam knew Eve, so this word, we're intimate here in the, tea, uh, the Tree of Life translation, that key word is the word yada. Go ahead and say yada. Yada is this kind of knowing that is experiential knowing, obviously, but it's an experiential kind of knowing, and it's really important in the scriptures. Now you have Cain, who knew yada his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. So now, don't miss also in this thing that Cain is building a city. And the Hebrew language, this, that's why I love this translation, is actually really clear that it's building. As in, the language tells us it's not complete. The project is ongoing and doesn't seem to have an end in, uh, in store. Uh, anyone else know this ongoing project? that just doesn't seem to have an end to it. The reason this language is, is because if we remember part of Cain's curse, or consequence is better, Cain's consequence is what? Wandering, of being ever unsettled. So the language says he's building a city, but it won't be complete because he will never find himself settled, which the text tells us. And then uh, one more quick nugget, and then if you're newer, we have a friend uh, named Freddie from Sunday School, from our childhood Sunday School. He hangs out with us. I see his hand up in the back, and he's got a question, so we're going to get to him in a moment, but there's one more nugget, okay? Some of you are confused. They're like, my head. Now, scholar N.T. Wright, who actually is one of the foremost New Testament scholars, but he has this fantastic nugget that points out how Cain names this city after or in the reputation or honor of his son. When it speaks of name in the, in the Bible, when it says their name, name means reputation as well. It's, it's not just, hey, my name is Wally. It's I do things in the reputation or in the honor of or in the aftermath of this person. So he names it after his son Enoch. This is contrasted with the last book in our Bibles, the book of Revelation, which portrays a constructed city coming down to be our forever home here. Ready? The difference in these two cities is the city in Revelation is in the name or honor of Yahweh. Oh, do you see what's happening here? Cain goes, oh, I think I'll name this city. I'm going to do this in honor of my kid. And you already see like, because we might go, oh, that's precious. And you go, it's a sign. It's a blinking light saying we're starting to move away further from honor. Worship, awe of the divine. 
It's quite a brilliant little nugget there. Thanks, Tom Wright. Now then, Freddie, gotcha. Head is, he's holding it up. You know what I mean? You remember this in Sunday school? Holding that, eh, trying to pull it down. Here, here's this question. Uh, where did Cain's wife come from? And Cain was building an entire city by himself. Really? Is that what's going on here? Good question, Freddie. Thank you. It highlights again that this is not about individuals. This is about community. Are you with me? Ah, another hint that it's about community and there's more going on. Are you with me? Thank you, Freddie. Now, Genesis um, 4, 17 through 26 unfolds ready as a genealogy. Your favorite parts of the Bible. I know. Or the ones that you go, eh, skip it. Please do not skip the genealogies. You don't have to pronounce all the names correctly, but don't skip them because contextually these are a really big deal. Simply put, genealogies show that history matters, that life is connected and it's communal as in my story is attached to other people's story, which makes it our story. Are you with me? People are connected. So genealogies in simplistic way says that this is about more, it's about community. Now, as we read Genesis 4, 19 to 22, there's something really, really key and important in the genealogy. So we'll read that and then we'll highlight that. Uh, 4, 19. Now, Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the first one was Adah, and the name of the second one was Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the pioneer. Oh, here we go. He was the pioneer of tent dwellers with livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. You know the names are different. They mean something because you don't do that, Jabal and Jubal. That's a nightmare. Anyways, he was the pioneer of all who skillfully handled stringed instruments and wind instruments. Now, Zillah also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of every kind of bronze and iron tools. Hoo-wee. This is really important because this brief genealogy of Cain reveals humanity, ready? Humanity's material, technological, and artistic progress. It's a big deal, which the narrator holds parallel to the lack of progress in humanity's morality. Oh, as humanity becomes co-partners with God in the world of creation and creativity, we watch and wonder with the question, what will be the intention and direction of human ingenuity? You see that's baked in there. Oh, we're progressing. We're technologically advancing. They're coming up with all these new things. What will they do with that? What could be a potential benefit is often directed towards selfish or wicked ends. So write this theme down because it's going to be found all throughout your biblical narrative. Technology, material things, uh, the arts are progressing. They're moving forward. It's a theme that happens, but the question is, how is humanity handling this? 
Can anyone see how wildly relevant this is for us today? Too often the goal or drive of technological advancement is the first one to the finish line wins because they get the most money, the most power, and the most influence. What's often missing is a thorough consideration of personal and societal impact, especially as it pertains to morality. We create in hyperspeed, but we educate in neutral. Can you see how that's a problem? Now we have technological, artistic advancement, but we have not educated well, and then maybe you get things now that we're not prepared for. Seems somewhat relevant. Now, as I've said, and as we'll see all throughout the study of Genesis, then what this gets at, and as I'll highlight, it's less about a literal story that happened, and it's more about how these stories continue to happen. Because does that happen today? Are we still facing that now? Are we facing it in a really, really significant way, that things are progressing in create creativity, but morally, ooh boy our moral responsibility might be lagging. Now, for the sake of simplicity and brevity, the, I can. The Genesis 1, ready? Genesis 1 seven-day creation of the cosmos is paralleled with these, what we just said is seven generations displaying human creativity. Humanity became a co-partner with the divine in the world of creation, but humanity's ingenuity is not grounded in honoring the divine. So although chapter 4 is kind of covered in this thick fog, it seems really dicey, it concludes on a hopeful note. Humanity is regenerated through another son of Adam and Eve. His name is Seth, right? That's going to be born, ready? Seth, that name means to place or foundation. And he replaces the son Abel, and Abel, Aval, that means breath, he was here in a breath and gone in a breath, is many how you see it. And so now there's Seth. It's a foundation. It's a setting ourselves for a new day. Do you see how the text is communicating that? Are you with me? You want to stand up and do jumping jacks for a minute? Okay, well, I'm trying. Now, it's through Seth's line that the biblical story continues, by the way. So we have that. This sets up Genesis 4.26. We're moving. And now we get into Seth. And to Seth, in turn, a son was born. And he named his son Enosh. It was then that people at this time began to invoke the Lord by name. Hooey. Now, in Hebrew, the name Enosh simply means man. This is placed at the front of humanity now invoking the name of Yahweh, which so you have man, which there's creating this sense of frailty, but now we are told by the text there is a heightened awareness of our utter dependence on Yahweh. And remember, the best Yahweh can be interpreted as, I will be what I will be, or he who causes to be. So now is this, we're going to call on the one who makes all that is. Ah, beautiful. Awe, wonder, finally some awe, wonder, and reverence for the divine. This guides us into the next narrative found in chapter 5, 
goes 5, 1 through 6, verse 8. That's what we're going to cover real quickly. Ready? Five, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. This is the written account, genealogy, of Adam's family line. But watch how it reads now. When God created human beings, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them human beings. Does some of this have a familiar ring to it? Okay. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him what? Is that not on there? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Good job, you guys are looking at me. Sorry, that's actually one through two. Verse three says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Why, this is important, the writer has disposed of the line of Cain, and the narrative is focusing on the idea of a fresh start for humanity with Seth. Which raises a rather large question, which I do think we have, right? Uh, this question, um, will humanity use the skills and artistic gifts given them to partner with the divine for good, tov is the Hebrew word, or use them for selfish ambition and self-indulgence? as the story previously showed. Now, here's where it's really important to know. We're just cruising through this, and within literally a sentence or two, we're jumping from Adam and Eve, and now we're into Seth, and we're into more. But here's the thing. The genealogy that's laid out in 5 through 6, 8 provides 10 generations. Mathematically, if you did it literally, mathematically, it adds up to over 1,600 years. We just jump, so we're like, what? Because you know what's coming, what we're going to start leading up to is this thing called the flood, and we all start at, like, asking, what's the deal with this belligerent God that's just like, all right, that's it, I've had enough with you couple people. No, 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 no. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have been like this disintegrating of moral responsibility. Does it help? It's important. So you go from Adam, ready, to the last name given us is a fella named Noah. He of hero fame that builds a boat, and then he puts a bunch of animals on it, and we all go, yay. Okay, well, brace yourself. We're going to lead into that. Contextually, this 10-generation genealogy parallels a number of other 10-generation genealogies. The best is a list of 10 Sumerian kings who reigned before a flood, ready, with the last king who's also the hero of the flood. Sound familiar? Huh. Also, there's going to be another 10-generation genealogy ahead that will move from Noah to a guy named Abraham. He also is a bit of a hero, correct? So there's a, there's a rhythm here. There's a pattern of what's going on. Now we're going to pause because I see little Freddy has got his hand way up in the air again. Yes, Freddy, what's your question? Are you saying that the Noah and the flood story is not unique? Yes and no, Freddy. Yes and no. First, calm down. Now, no, because there are actually several flood stories in what is known as the antediluvian period, which is from creation, from Adam, 
to the Noah flood, that period in history is called antediluvian, and there actually have, scholars have, there are lots of floods that took place there, number of them that had a hero to the flood. So if you're like, what? You didn't learn that, did you? Some reason they didn't tell you about that, because we really got to try and protect the Bible, or we don't. Now, Yes, though it is unique in that Noah's story carries some very significant differences, and that's the point. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're not doing Noah and the flood till next week, okay? We're doing the lead-up because the lead-up's really important. Genesis 5, 28 to 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. <laughs> not right now, Freddie. He made him Noah... He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful what? Toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. This is so key. Circle this, write it down in your Bible, whatever it may be, really key verse. Our Western modern minds want to just skip over the genealogy stuff. But we would also be skipping over the massive depth found in these two verses. First, it references back to the curse that went to Adam, uh, 3.17. I think we have that on screen. Uh, cursed is the ground because of you, your choices, through painful what? There it is. Toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Because of this fracture between humanity and the soil, we are told that humanity, will, there will be a toil in trying to steward things. The Hebrew word for this toil, I mentioned it, Itzivan. Go ahead and say Itzivan. Itzivan. It's a fantastic word, but it carries the dominant meaning of sorrow or ache. It's the ache of the heart. This is a universal sadness now baked into the human experience. It's an ache in the soul alerting us that there's a break in shalom. Theologian Ronald Rollheiser describes it as a barrenness. Ready? saying none of us die having given birth to everything we wanted to do. There is within us a creative ache that summons us back to our creator. Are you with me? So the crucial, crucial question is, that this ache raises is what will humanity do with this ache? Will it lead to a turn or a return to the creator? Or will it be misdirected towards creating chaos? Last week, we looked at what Cain did, right? What did Cain do with his ache? He turned on his brother. Although he was invited and empowered by the divine to master the chaos within him, Cain ignores wisdom and turns the ache outward, and he kills his brother Abel. And now in the current narrative, we have this guy Lamech, but ready what he did. He pins his hope on his son, Noah. This, oh, my prayer is essentially what he said. My hope is that this Noah, my son Noah, will provide comfort from the Itzivan. By the way, the name Noah, guess what it means? And it's unparalleled in, in the biblical narrative or extra-biblical sources, the name Noah is, it carries the Hebrew meaning to comfort or to rest. So the name actually has a clear purpose. Lamech 
here believes or trusts that his son will provide comfort from the Itzivan. I hope your curiosity radar is blinking like crazy. Freddie is jumping up and down right now. So then, remember there is already a purpose to the eight. Itzivan functions like a homing device calling us back to where we, belong, where we belong, to our beginning, to our belonging, to our creator. Are you with me? That's the purpose. That's the intent. That's what it's doing. But Lamech is pinning his hope elsewhere. This alerts us as, uh-oh, this is an uh-oh moment. Uh-oh. So now let's tie some clouds together. Genesis 5, 30 to 32. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years. And then he died. We do not even have time to get into the fact that 7777 in the biblical understanding, Hebrew consciousness, is wholeness, completion. He completed a life. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Oh, this is so good. In studying the genealogies, which you all have done, so I'll just play reminder, we find Adam. Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, one of which really muddles things up, correct? Cain. Now we have Noah. We're told that Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, one of which is going to really muddle things up, Ham. Interesting, yes? The writer is blasting an air horn in the reader's face. The divine created and blessed humanity, but humanity keeps taking things off course. So here is another beginning or a new creation account. Let's try again. Are you tracking? This is important because God does not quit on humanity. Move on to plan B. God does not. We see over and over in the text saying, this is my plan to partner with humanity to move things towards Tov and Shalom. I hope you hear that. Genesis 6. We're already to Genesis 6. Okay, one verse, uh, verses 1 through 3. Now when humankind began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, then the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took for themselves wives, any they chose. Then Adonai said, My spirit will not remain with humankind forever since they are flesh, so their days will be 120 years. We don't have time, but look in this thing. It says, then the sons of God, that's Elohim, and then you have, then Adonai said, which is Yahweh, and my spirit, which is Ruach, which is breath, will not remain in humankind forever. There's a lot going on. We can't even get to it. But here's the thing that is really interesting. Set for 120 years, there's like this setting, which raises the question, if we don't make it that long, why? Who's responsible? It's like kind of a, huh, well, that's interesting. I don't think I have to tell you things of cancer and all sorts of chaos that we deal with that ends things, and you go, Huh, is that the intent? Was that supposed to be? Now, the text pleads with us to ask why. Jewish uh, scholar Nahum Sarna states this small section, and here's the thing, is the strangest of all the Genesis narratives. 
Are you picking this up right here? So I'm going to have two brief comments because this in, pertains to the sons of God or the Nephilim, which is coming. And maybe some of you are like, oh yeah, the Nephilim, which this is where people get off the bus in many ways. So I just, two quick things. We don't have time to get into it, but here's the first. Just as humanity was striving for divinity in Genesis 3, right? Humanity says, we, if we eat this fruit, we will be like God. And God says, can't have that. And steps in and says, you're out of bounds. Now here in this story, we have some element of divinity trying to lower themselves to the level of humanity. Once again, God intervenes and says, out of bounds, we can't do that. Are you with me? That's one little nugget that you're like, oh, interesting. It's telling a story. Secondly, I bend toward the scholarship that says that this passage cannot be other than a fragment of what once was a very well-known and fuller story, but here we only have an etching of the barest outline of a story. So that's how I say that, to say cheers to sci-fi and mythology fans. You're like, all right, we get to keep the Nephilim and do whatever you want. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Mystery. You have me saying, I don't know. Mystery, and I'm glad for it. I just go with it. Because here's the thing. If you're bothered, demanding certainty is a modern Western thinking thing anyways. We've got to have the answer. Yeah, I've got to get my dopamine hit that says I had a question, now I have the answer. Dopamine hit. Yeah, that's our problem. Now, what do we have here in the language signaling and implying that these celestial beings were driven by, ready though, what we do have, they were driven by lust, not by character. Okay, that is important. So they took as they pleased. So it is very fitting within the larger narrative that what is being communicated is the magnitude of evil that has now hit a universal scale. It's within what's going on here. So we find this one God, Yahweh, who continues to rule over and control the breath of life. What happens when humanity does not listen to the Itzivan? What happens when that ache is ignored, misdirected, or simply numbed? Anyone know anyone that just tries to numb the ache? Genesis 6-5 tells us what goes then? The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human, what? Huh, was only evil all the time. Has anyone heard this, read this scripture before? Circle this, it's such a big deal. Watch what happens. First, where are the thoughts coming from? Where are the thoughts coming from? The heart, because in Hebrew consciousness, the brain is understood as a gift, but it ultimately answers to the organ of thought, understanding, and volition, which is the heart, which is not actually about feelings to the Hebrew consciousness. This phrase literally in the Hebrew reads, every product of the thoughts of his heart. Highlighting this particular sadness is not intellectual, but it's a soul ache. Secondly, the word inclination in the Hebrew has some huge teeth. Now that word is the word yetzer. I, I think that's up. Next slide. 
Yeah, Yatzer, go ahead and say Yatzer. Yatzer, it's how it's pronounced. It means imagination in the Hebrew. Imagination is the clearest and most used in the Hebrew. The imagination, the innate impulses, the exercise of the will can drive the human heart to either Yetzer Tov, to have an imagination that moves us toward good, or an imagination that moves us towards Ra, which is evil. Are you with me? Oh, it's so, so interesting. When humanity does not bake the imagination in the goodness of God, things go sideways. Humanity gives way to chaos. Do we see this in our world? From violence on the street to violence on the university campus to a lack of imagination when we respond to bombs and guns with more bombs and guns. And it all devolves all the way down to using a derogatory name to someone. It's a lack of imagination. It's lazy. And boy, when we say that in West Michigan, you call me lazy? Lazy imagination is when we just devolve into name-calling and violence and chaos. Your imagination is not baked in the goodness of the divine. It's lazy. Which This naturally moves us into verses 6 and 7. Hopefully, the temperature in the room is rising. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his what? This is where we get into some things, the pictures in the scriptures, God's heart, God has a heart, was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, which is where many people are getting off the God bus, correct? What kind of God is this? Seriously, we're just going to wipe everything out? On one side, we say, we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And on the other side, it seems we have a quick-tempered deity who's wiping out all of humanity except one guy and his family. I hope you can at least, can, you, can we confess that this is a big leap for some people? And that when people say, ah, you can keep that God, I'm not interested, that we'll go, mm, I get that. Let's talk further. I can understand now watch this. This is so important how we tell the story of Noah and the flood, the lead up. This is everything. So let's do some, hopefully I'm doing a crazy uh, Sunday school stuff. All right, next verse, Genesis 6, 6 and 7. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. See these four words, regretted, made, troubled, earth. Circle them, big deal. Here's this. This is held alongside Lamech. If you remember Lamech, Noah's dad, his earlier declaration, let's put that up, 529, that says this. He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. These four words used by Lamech are comfort, labor, toil, and ground in this exact order are the same four Hebrew words used by the divine in the exact same order. It looks like this. Next slide. Comfort and regretted is the same Hebrew word, naham. 
Labor and made is saw. Toil and troubled is our word itziban. And ground in earth is adama. It's the same thing. We in English decide, ah, we're going to change it up. Why? I don't know. But what is often then pitched as an angry, belligerent deity declaring a total destruction of every human being is actually the divine simply mimicking Lamech. It's a way of holding a mirror to Lamech's statement of how he is placing his hope in his son Noah to create comfort for the Itzivan. That's what's going on here. Because, so here's the way I would say it. Lamech's hope in his son Noah seems to be an inflection point. It's a straw that breaks the camel's back for the divine. You continue to just keep devolving into chaos. Your hope is moving in the wrong direction. And I'm going to name it here. You have now placed all of your hope somewhere else. You've left me. And I will do something about it. Are you feeling that? It's a very different story, I hope. This narrative quickly gives us 10 generations in which morality has taken a backseat to the ancient version of, hey, you do you. The communal has been obliterated by the ignoring or disintegrating of morality. Once again, can you see how the drive is less about one story that literally happened like, just like this? And it's more about what continues to happen when humanity ignores moral responsibility. Hooey. This does not get resolved, by the way, by sitting behind our screens, computer, tablet, smartphone or, tele smartphone, or television, and point out how stupid those people are. They're unhelpful. Uh, labels that separate humanity into us and them guarantees that we will just perpetuate the level of chaos. I really don't like labels. Oh, those people, they're the problem. A couple of things that lead us into a time of reflection and hopefully lives of thoughtful action. Oh, this one sits. Abraham Joshua Heschel was a Jewish theologian, a rabbi, and an author. He was born in Poland in 1907. He later immigrated to the United States where he got involved with the civil rights movement marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Heschel explained why he got involved in the peace movement was through his study of the Hebrew prophets. Shortly before he died in 1972, Heschel said this. Next slide. The more deeply immersed I became in the thinking of the prophets, the more powerfully it became clear to me what the lives of the prophets sought to convey. That morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. That indifference to evil is worse than evil itself. That in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. Are you feeling that? That is prophetic. That is a just calling it so well. When we say, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, 
And some people don't like that because we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Some people don't have bootstraps. Some people don't have boots. And we are together. Some of you may have heard what is happening on the campus of Asbury University and um, Seminary. Anyone? In Wilmore, Kentucky. What began as a typical chapel service is now in its 11th day, okay, in which it's now being described by some as a revival. So what began 11 days ago has thousands upon thousands of Christians streaming in from all over to witness and participate in prayer, musical worship, and confession and testimony. One of the uh, um, theology professors there, McCall, he says this, he's speaking of it. What we are experiencing now, this inexpressibly deep sense of, ready? Peace, wholeness, holiness, belonging, and love is only the smallest of windows into the life for which we are made. One student on campus, Madison Pierce, has been there the entire time for the entirety of it, took specific note of the description for his generation. Listen to this, what they're experiencing, he says this, a tangible sense of peace for a generation with unprecedented anxiety. A restorative sense of belonging for a generation amidst an epidemic of loneliness. An authentic hope for a generation marked by depression. A leadership emphasizing protective humility in relationship with power for a generation deeply hurt by the abuse of religious power. A focus on participatory adoration of the divine in an age of digital distraction. Now, here's what I say, uh, a couple pictures of what's going on. Here's inside the chapel as things like we're going and then moving. Next slide. You have some of these things, student-led chapel, and then things get ramped up, and they have been praying and singing, confessing, testimony shared. And here's the thing. It's not wild. It's not chaotic. It's not, if you're like, oh, it's just all whipped up emotions. Everything they've said is it's not in that vein. But, next slide. This is now getting to where they're, they're, they're miles down the street, people from all over that are trying to get there. This is what's happening there. Revival, as it's being described outside, defined is an awakening of that which has been dormant. So here's the thing I want to share. My optimism is bonkers thrilled that the church is waking up to the Christ spirit. That's my optimism. And my pessimism worries it's going to be confined to a religious building. May the Spirit blow and move everywhere. Why? Because to be Christian is a lived experience in the world. In the world. It's not privatized belief stored in religious buildings. We should absolutely bake our lives in that which awakens and sets fire to the soul. Scripture, art, and activity that brings out the goodness, the tove in us, leads us to create tove for the world. 
We need to bake our lives. What is that for you? I don't know. I am not a fundamentalist in saying, you've got to do these six things or else or whatever. What is it? That when we bake our lives and it just draws out the tove, it brings comfort to the eats, Yvonne. This is what our world needs. Bake the soul's giddy-up and then go. Because we can't stay still. We can't keep it confined inside of walls. My hope, my hope and prayer is these students and all of these people that are going to this place will get out in the world and live that which they're experiencing themselves for the world to be baked in the goodness of God. We have to go. We have to live it out. To follow Jesus is to say, yes, I am my brother's keeper which is the beginning of a very messy existence. Compassion and mercy, forgiveness and grace are a beautiful mess. To be a community that desires and aspires to follow Jesus is to embrace diversity and to peacefully wrestle through our many differences. Because if we can hold to the one common thread of divine love, it can overcome all of the differences. When I say for us to be a diverse community, that means it's not going to be easy. That means we're going to interact with people who think differently than we do, who have different backgrounds and experiences, and we cannot just be the church of uniformity is an empty church. But when we can have conversations and someone says something and you think, what? The response then maybe inside you're like, what? Outside you could go, that's really interesting. Could you tell me how you got there? Maybe we should grab some coffee. I'm not, I'd like to know how you landed at that spot. You believe what? That's really fascinating. I want to hear more rather than you're gone. You're out. You can't be here. You're not a Christian. You're whatever. Can we engage? Can we wrestle? This is what is needed more than ever. Because our moral responsibility means it extends to the other, others, our neighbor, our brother, our sister, my thoughts or how are my actions impacting you? Walk that out. How we live, eat, dress, our work, our relationships, all of it matters. It's all connected. We begin with what do I start with first? It's a big deal. That's what this narrative is saying. That's what the story is unfolding here. Chaos that devolves over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is essentially saying to us, it happens. Will you, church, pay attention? I trust my experiences, this church, you all, and beyond have pliable hearts baked in tove, wanting to embrace and love well. May we do that. May we do that. Gracious God.
I bless you for not giving up on us. In the myriad of ways that we take things off course, God, I, I, it's easy for me to take things off course, as I'm sure it is for each one here. There are ways in which we veer to self-preservation, self-comfort, God, pry our hearts open. Although painful, when our hearts are cracked open, may your love, grace, compassion, mercy, and shalom fall in and lead us, guide us, transform us to be your people in the world. God, may we reflect sit down and make lists of ways that we can bake ourselves in your goodness. And then may we pay attention to how we live in light of what it says and does for our neighbor, our coworker, our kids, our grandkids, our enemies. May we be convicted, called, summoned, and sent by your love and your mercy. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.